Hi, everyone. Alexis Brooks here from Higher Journeys. So delighted that you decided to join me today. Well, if you've been watching Higher Journeys, and I have to say, I can't believe it's been close to 10 years now, you undoubtedly know that we have covered in excess the very, very broad, still very mysterious, and truly fascinating subject area of the ET contact and UFO phenomenon. You know, I put ET contact at the beginning because this particular show, uh, we have really, really focused on the experiential aspect of this very, very um, enigmatic phenomenon. We have interviewed quite a few guests at this point, individuals who feel themselves to be, in many cases, lifelong uh, contactees. And the more we drill down on this uh, very important subject matter, the more questions we have. Well, who better to try to answer some of these questions in a name I know you all know, and that's none other than Whitley Streber. Whitley has been a guest on this show, in fact, several times now, but he always has something new to share and is never short of passion, uh, of wisdom, and certainly of courage. I'm happy to say that Whitley is going to be our next guest instructor on our upcoming workshop. That's from the Higher Journeys Conscious Academy this coming Saturday, January 29th, where he will be talking about how to cope with the contact enigma, the contact experience. There are a lot of people I know that I've heard from who are unsettled at a minimum with their encounters, interested in them for sure, but not knowing quite what to do with them, how to cope, how to integrate, how to talk to family, friends, maybe even strangers about their encounters. This is one of the main things that Willie will be drilling down on uh, uh, during the workshop coming up. And I'm re re really excited and think it's a very, very vital discussion to have. So I, I certainly hope that you'll check the link below and sign up for uh, Whitley's upcoming workshop. But for now, let's get into a conversation where we'll be talking about uh, this very thing, this very theme of those who are feeling displaced, wanting to understand, wanting to legitimize, legitimize their experiences. How do we get closer to that so we can feel comfortable with the reality of the ET contact phenomenon? Join us right now on Higher Journeys. Right now on Higher Journeys with Alexis Brooks. Well, it is always a pleasure to have somebody who I consider to be the, if I may say, Whitley, the grandfather of the ET contact phenomenon. I don't mean that by age, folks. I mean that by experience. Uh, Whitley Streber, probably the most passionate man I know when it comes to digging into and unpacking the experience or phenomenon. We're going to be getting into it deep today, everyone. So welcome to you all and welcome back, Whitley. How are you? Fine, thank you. Again, we're going to be getting into something that I know you're all too familiar with. And I want to get into some of the the more, some may be considered nuanced uh, in terms of the phenomenon. Some may be a little bit more in your face. And I'm talking to you, the journeyers. But I want to start out with this. A, a term that I sort of came up with today as it relates to this phenomenon of ET contact. And I'm calling it the alone together syndrome. The alone together syndrome, we can call it ATS. Here's the deal, and see if you agree, Whitley. As I have talked to a myriad of experiencers over the years, we've heard from them in various venues, there seems to be this chorus of silence, not really silence, but the feeling of, of being alone as if they're the only ones having the experience, no matter how much, particularly in the last several years, people have come out to talk about their own experiences. There still seems to be this sense of isolation, I'm the only one. Where do you think that's derived from? Where does that come from, in your opinion? Well, so first, I don't feel it. So I'm not entirely aware of where it comes from. Uh, the, I guess there are people who feel alone because they have um, kept it secret. I guess there are people who feel isolated because their experiences are so bizarre they can't talk about them. Uh, I have to a degree that problem, I suppose, but I don't think about it. Uh, I think that more and more, actually, uh, close encounter witnesses are beginning to 
come out and to join uh, social media uh, that, that we have a lot of them on unknowncountry.com and it's a, primarily as a social media platform. It has news in the podcasts, of course, but uh, many, many people come to it because, you know, they can be with other experiencers and talk and so forth and they don't need to use their real names. So I'm not so sure that sense of aloneness is 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 endemic. Uh, certainly, it isn't endemic, and uh, uh, I do think that there are people, a lot of people, who have worked for the government or do work for it, who are keeping private, not classified, but private their experiences because. If you work in this area in the government, whether it's in the military or the intelligence community or wherever it may be, the visitors are going to come to you. They will come and they will come into your life and it will be very strange and it will be very distressing. And you will end up in a situation where you can't talk about it and you want to. And there are probably thousands of such people. It's a lot especially the military, anyone who sees a UFO in the military through radar or in a plane or anything like that is likely to become involved. Yes, we did certainly have a lot of documented cases of that. I'm thinking of Terry Lovelace as an example. That's a conundrum. I don't know if you want to go any deeper into that, Whitley. This, this... Well, sure. Uh, okay. We have uh, Kevin Day coming on Dreamland shortly. Kevin, it was the radar operator aboard the uh, destroyer Princeton who originally uh, spotted the what became known as the Tic Tac UFOs. And uh, we've had uh, Matthew Roberts on, who was aboard the uh, Roosevelt when the gimbal incident occurred as a, uh, um, involved in that. And both of these men have become involved since then. It, 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 uh, Matthew Roberts was directly involved in the sense that he actually began to have close encounter experiences after his uh, after his uh, involvement on the on the ship, and he began to also. Um, uh, he wrote a book about it. Kevin Day simply had his life overturned, basically it, 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 because he knew what he was seeing was real and that it was not out, us at what hours. At one point, he saw a craft drop from 30,000, 20,000 feet or something into the water in a in a third of a second and they calculated that it was going over 30,000 miles an hour and that's impossible it can't happen but it did and uh that changes you when you see that kind of thing because suddenly he knew that there was something real about all of this stuff that had been debunked and lied about all of these years and that that is happening to people um, I think also in a more general sense, as it gradually filters through the human community, that this is actually real, that when people see these objects, their reactions are going to be very different and very profound. It's going to merely seeing one is going to change your life. Uh, Previously, seeing one led you to, well, what was that? You know, but now when you know what it is, if that <clears throat> that day comes, and I think it will, that's going to be very disruptive to a human life. Mm -hmm. It seems like we're getting there quickly. And yet, as I'm listening to you describe witnessing a craft versus other forms of interaction, i.e. being in your room alone and seeing a strange being literally walk through your wall or peer through, come through your ceiling. 
of which well, that, that's upsetting of course of course it's upsetting but these seems to be two drastically different experiences uh you know both of them are jarring um how, how well, i think that what i'm saying is this once the it is generally accepted that these are are uh, real unknowns when people see them the experience is going to be much more powerful than it is now and that's already changing for a lot of people that's what that's what changed kevin day so much mm -hmm. uh, and you can you hear him talk about it on the show on dreamland which is i believe uh on february the 4th he'll be on the show uh it's powerful to hear him speak of his his struggle to yeah. to live with this knowledge absolutely indeed it is we've had kevin on the show probably about two years ago now and mm -hmm. that was the focus was his own uh experiential journey versus the the official report and he's still yeah. having a hard time i'm sure reconciling that so we'll make sure uh, uh we'll have a link to dreamland so folks can go there what a great show you have to do some stellar work. Well, sticking with this, this is perhaps a perfect segue for my next question, having to do with a comment that you made when you and I recently spoke. Uh, and uh, as we were getting ready for a workshop, little plug, we'll be talking about that a little bit later in the show that Whitley's doing for us. You said that people who are having these experiences, Whitley, are on the front lines of all of this. They're on the front lines. What did you mean by that, the front lines? The front line of human change of social change, cultural change, and psychological change. There could be no more front line, no more front front line than that front line. And this is where the species is evolving and growing. This is the evolutionary uh, <clears throat> branch of the human species. I said a long time ago, and I believe in a preface to one of Jacques Vallée's books, or forward to one of Jacques Vallée's books, that this is what evolution looks like when it's applied to a conscious mind. And that's exactly what we're in experiencing here. It's an evolutionary process. And we are seeing the induct the in process of induction of the evo of evolution in the form of aliens or apparent aliens and little spacecraft and extraordinary experiences and so on and so forth. Um, and life-changing, overturning experiences of various kinds. Mm -hmm. That's evolutionary. And it's evolutionary not just in an individual, but also it enters, as we know now, experience is carried in DNA. In other words, uh, when you pass your DNA down to your children, a lot of the experience that you had is carried there not in terms of memories, but in terms of the way your DNA is going to approach the world. Interesting. Uh, and uh, there have been and are still studies about that and about the damage, for example, that the World War did in Europe <clears throat> to people. And uh, not only was an entire generation afflicted with PTSD, but also uh, their DNA left their children profoundly changed. And this is happening. This is what the visitors are doing. They are essentially changing our DNA, not by going in and monkeying around with us in some way, but simply by being there, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. being the enigma and the, and the, and the challenge that they are. That's profound, and yet it makes perfect sense to me when we think about uh, how we operate consciousness and the energetic blueprint that is invariable in, in all of our lives. Energy not being destroyed, but changing form. I can see that energetic blueprint being passed down generational, generationally, particularly with something so uh, visceral in one's life. That makes sense. This is also a perfect segue to talk about the familial connection. And that literal intergenerational link where there are multiple generations of experiencers. I'd love to get your take on that. How deep is that and how common is that from your perspective? 
I think it's quite common. I think, uh, for example, getting back to the military, many military people who have encounters find that their children become involved. And because especially if you, know, you, you, you engage with the visitors in some hostile way, presenting a, a challenge of some sort, the next thing you know, they're in your kids' bedrooms, <laughs> so, but they're not told that they're not told that in in advance that that's likely to happen. So they don't get to they don't get to uh, they they have to just live with it when it happens. Um, <clears throat> I think that family is a huge part of this. We have many letters from people who are saying their family, their visitors are family. And so very often the dead show up with what appear to be aliens. <clears throat> and to me, that means that this is a family affair of some kind. In other words, we're not necessarily separate from them on some level that perhaps we're not consciously aware of, but we're not separate from them. I find that very interesting. Uh, in my own life, I suspect that my father was involved. I don't think my mother was, or she may have been. She used to have a horror of, I believe she had nightmares about monkeys coming in the windows. And I think that's a sign that she may have been involved. I don't know if my sister and brother were or are. My sister brother's still alive. He's never given any indication of it. My son was, but he now isn't and doesn't remember a thing. So it's a mixed bag. But I think there's a deep level of family here that we, we are not we don't understand or we've lost track of. So as, as you say, uh, you feel that these experiences are putting us on, putting it, putting experiencers on the front lines. Now that makes even more sense. That puts it into an even more uh, important context. Interesting about your mother saying that she had yeah. a memory of monkeys coming through the well, window. Not memories, dreams, Nightmare. dreams. I'm sorry. Nightmare. Dreams. Yeah. Yeah, she Screen did. memory, perhaps. Well, perhaps. I mean, you just don't know. Um, when my brother showed her my book, at first he said, well, mother said a strange thing. She said, oh, my God, Whitley's written about the little men. <laughs> but then now he says, no, no, I never said that. She said, simply, Whitley's written about little men. So I don't know whether which one is correct. But uh, it runs in families more overtly than it did in mine or does in mine. Uh, it runs in a lot of families when the children, I mean, I get letters all the time, emails all the time from people whose children are involved. And they say, what do we do? And the answer is that you, you just let the children tell you, you don't you don't interrogate them. You let them tell you if they want to. And in other words, it, you don't interrogate and say, did anything unusual happen to you last night? And uh, you give them all the support you can. That's all we can do. We can't do anything else. Because if we engage with them as if this is a real experience or a real event, they're going to be, become very confused about what, how the world works and what it is. And so we can't do that. We have to just let them come to us and give them all the support and comfort that we can. Well, that was an unusual experience. Do you think it was a dream? Well, you're not sure. Well, then maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. Let me give you a hug. You know, that's the way to approach it with children, not to, oh, my God, you're in, you've got aliens in your bedroom. I mean, that's not going to help a child grow up at all. So, no. And yet there's the opposite end of the spectrum of those 
parents that say you're absolutely nuts, go eat your dinner, or, you know, maybe I'm being a little bit, you know, drastic in that, but not really. There are a lot of, a lot of parents, the kids come to them saying, I have an imaginary friend or a friend and they say it's imaginary. Is that changing? You think is that paradigm of parents being a little bit more compassionate uh, happening now? Compassion is an acquired skill in humanity. It's something you have to learn. Um, And I think that one of the things that suppresses compassion is belief. Anne used to say the human species is too young to have beliefs. What we need are good questions. One of her wisest statements. I know. I love that. Yeah, me too. And, uh, uh, but when a child of someone with strong beliefs of some kind announces that they've had something like this happen to them. Those beliefs are going to harm that child, no question. Uh, I've had heard stories of people who have uh, put their children into, uh, uh, assumed that there was something wrong with their children mentally and taken them into therapy I've had instances where they have children have reported seeing the the grays and the parents' reaction has been that this is demons and it's you you've got sin in you and that's why the demons are coming to you. There's all kinds of reactions like that and none of them are healthy. The only healthy reaction is the one I outlined before. Supportive compassion and not closing the question. Here, 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 here. Not only do we hear that sort of dogma in, in the scenario you're talking about, Whitley, but so much now on our on our social media. When we do a show like this, we're, we may, I don't want to conjure it, but we, we're apt to get someone to say what you're talking about is a, a Satanism or a demon, you know, again. Well, you know, there's a m- m- mankind is mentally ill. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be in the fix we're in as a species. We don't do things rationally. We're not rational. You have to work to be rational. It's hard. You have to work on yourself all the time. Am I letting my emotions deceive me? What is real here? This is essential. It's absolutely essential. You have to do this. Yeah. Seems like that's a, what would you call it? A commodity these days. Logic analysis and intuition and instinct seem to be in short supply. Very, very much so. Well, people are divided as never before since the Civil War in the United States. They were more divided during the Civil War than they are now. But uh, they, they, uh, in the, in that time, they had a, a general agreement about which they disagreed. Their general agreement was that men should be free, and that, but they disagreed about what that meant. And unfortunately, now we've got a lot of people in this country who do not want people who disagree with them to be free. Mm-hmm. There's a difference, and I think that it's le- going to lead probably toward a. F- possibly fatal challenge to the Republic. I think the Republic may fall and this may cease to be a free country. It's fairly soon. Obviously this is the overarching conversation. We know what we're all talking about here. Okay. I think we've had this conversation before Woodley without getting into the weeds. We all know what he's talking about and and, in within the, what context where, if any, do the visitors play? I've asked you this before. I think I know what your answer will be, but do they have a stake in the outcome? Do they have a play in this process? Are they involved? Do you feel in any way? It, involved in what? I'm not exactly sure. Well, what what's going on right now without going with... with Politically? Not politically per se, but just the tenor of the the state of humanity in this... Completely divisive um, world. Clearly, whether for their own purposes or out of altruism, I can't say, or probably it's a mixture of both. 
they obviously are interested in the survival of the species. And uh, on some level, maybe not even a physical level, I don't know. Uh, but they're interested in us in some way or they wouldn't be here. Uh, they're not here just for the the uh, the raccoons and the and the chimpanzees, I suspect, because there's not a lot of evidence that there's a little bit of evidence that animals are involved, but not a lot. There's the cattle mutilations, and mm. they seem so horrible. And yet, at the same time, if that's a food source for them, then they have chosen to use the same animals we use for food. Uh, so they must be trying to trying trying. In other words, they're not eating us; they're eating our own food animals. So I don't think of the cattle mutilations as being particularly horrible. I mean, you want to see a much more horrible cattle mutilation? Go to a slaughterhouse, and you'll see ten thousand of them in a week more. Mm. So uh, uh, they. I think they care, and the reason is the way this emerged. It had kind of knocked along in the background of human life for thousands of years. It had numerous points of intersection that were important, uh, and that's where our myths and our gods and all of that stuff probably comes from. Ezekiel's wheel, an example. Um, then comes World War II, not so much after World War I, but World War II. And suddenly we see strange lights in the sky, the Foo Fighters during the war. And the next thing you know, after right after the war, comes the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and a, few, a little while later, the Roswell incident. Then this thing erupts into human life. There's the early contactee movement, which are basically people trying to exploit the credulity of others, but it turns into something real when Betty and Barney Hill show up. And now, you know, you could say that Whitley Strieber's another George Adamski, except there's a couple of things that are wrong with that story. First, unlike George Adamski, I have a lot of other witnesses to my experience is not people simply seeing something at a distance, but who have actual face-to-face -face interaction with the visitors in my cabin and have stepped up and said so. Mm -hmm. I have an implant in my left ear, which can be felt and can be used and has been studied. And there's even a video on unknowncountry.com to showing um, the attempt to remove it. It's real. It's still there. Oh, absolutely. I use it all the time when I work as a research tool. It's wonderful. It's the best darn thing I've ever had. So, um, hmm. so yeah. So, so of course they care. They want us to live, I think, but uh, that's what my whole body of work is about. It's always been about that. Even before I knew the visitors, I wrote books like War Day and Nature's End which War Day is a warning about even limited nuclear war, which was published at a time when the administration, the Reagan administration, was saying limited nuclear war was winnable and survivable. And I noticed that they were trying to get a budget for FEMA to harden um, industrial sites. And I thought, well, wait a minute, what about us? I'm not living in an industrial site. I'm living in a house with my kids and my wife. And so I wrote the book to warn about that. And then I wrote Nature's End, which has turned out to be essentially a true story. Uh, the, the Amazon is burning. California is burning, just like it was in that book written and published in 1986. Hmm. And so, and they were already in my life, in other words. And if you look farther back to the Wolfit, the, mm -hmm. the novel, The Wolf, and The Wolf and Are the Grays. And the next one, The Hunger, The Vampire, Miriam, The Vampire, is the blondes. And they are both predatory and necessary, in love with us and dangerous to us, all wrapped up in one. Oh, the, there's a bottom line, a baseline here, and that is 
without our survival, this stops and they don't think they want it to stop. So that's what they're here for. They're here to help us survive up to a point. I don't think they will let us become supplicants. In other words, they're not going to colonize us culturally by showing up in an array of extraordinary technology that we can't understand. And we're going to start doing like happened when the Europeans showed up all over the world in the 18th and 19th centuries. All of a sudden, these wonderful ancient cultures abandoned themselves and went for the good European knives and cloth and guns. And that's what they wanted. And the hell with my my baskets and my stone tools and my gods. They know that will happen to all, us too if they show up in that same way. And they're not, they're working. And I think that they are in a quandary because if they don't help us in some way very soon, we might lose our planet. Hmm. But if they do help us, then we might lose our cultural identity. And so what's the decision? That's do they keep us on as sort of cultural eunuchs or do they let us go? That's their decision. And I think they're making it now. I was just going to say, or I wonder if they're in, in a, at a point of contemplation as to what to do. You refer to they, and of course, you're known famously for referring to them as the visitors, Whitley. But I want to ask you briefly about this idea of they. And so many of us, I think, are in the habit of referring to non-human intelligence as one uh, species, one entity, they. And yet I have always felt, I think you probably do too, that there is a spectrum of species and with that, perhaps I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but my surmise is with that, a spectrum of motivations, a spectrum of levels of intelligence. Give me your thoughts on that. When you say they, are you talking about one species or broadly? No, I'm, 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 I actually don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I, to be honest with you, I have seen about four different forms. Um, I've seen the dark blue figures, short, troll-like, but with terrific senses of humor. And I mean, if you like sardonic humor, they're, they're definitely your stand-up comics. Uh, if you don't like sardonic, though, forget it. Then the grays, uh, then some very tall blonde people then some people who looked more human but more asian than 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 not who were not human and but do i know that these are species no i don't i know what i can describe as having seen do i know that that's what was there no i don't I do not. Nobody does. And the second we go from, well, the greys, the reptilians, the this, the that, the other, from, uh, from the presence to the dividing it all up into different species, we have done exactly what Anne warned us against doing. We've become believers. And I, I do not intend to do that. I won't become a believer. Uh, I can tell you what I've seen, but I cannot tell you what it was. Here, here. I respect that immensely. I respect that perspective immensely. We have to be so careful of that, as tempted as we are to tether to a belief. Let's, uh, I love that quote by Anne. I've used that, by the way. I've borrowed yeah. it and always give it. It's very important because, yeah. you know, without that, we can't really make any progress. That's the reason human history is a, is a history of endless wars, because we're basically fighting over two things, territory and beliefs. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, if we're not fighting over territory, then we're surely fighting over beliefs. 
And in, in World War II, we did both at the same time. Hitler had beliefs that killed millions of people. And he wanted territory too. It was both. He was a, he was a double threat. Uh, and we have, um, I just, I try hard to live beyond belief all the time. And it's difficult because there's a subtext to my life and to every life that's a, essentially a subtext of beliefs that we, we are so convinced by that we just assume they must be true. But I can, sh I can demonstrate in five minutes why there's no such thing as a true belief. Go for it. I'll give you two minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I mean, there was a philosopher, or still is, uh, called Edmund Gettier, who published a short paper in 1963 that overturned the, the, the idea of justified true belief which had been accepted in philosophy for 2,000 years since Plato elucidated it. And a justified true belief is something that you have knowledge of, that you have reason to believe is true, and that you can see is true. That's a justified true belief. Okay, you'd think, well, that's my life. I mean, I'm looking at you, Alexis. Uh, I'm in my room, I, I have a desk in front of me, a microphone, all of this. Everyone who's watching is saying, yeah, the same thing. Uh, we see you and so forth, and we all know that this is all true. Uh, chance says, not so fast. And this is what Dr. Gettier came to. Let me describe it in terms of the cow problem, which is a lovely little problem. A farmer has a cow who he thinks may be ill. So he sequesters the cow. She's a heifer, a black and white heifer, in a field by herself, where while he's working in his barn, he can look out into the field and see her. And look and be sure she's all right, that she's not down or anything or looking sick. In the field, there are two features, a tree and a hollow. Only if she wanders into the hollow will he be unable to see her, but that would only be for a matter of moments, so he's not worried about that. While he's working in his barn, she does wander into the hollow. At the same time, by chance, which is a very big deal here, a piece of black and white paper blows into the field and lodges under the tree. He then looks into the field, sees the black and white paper under the tree, and concludes that's his cow and she's all right. She is all right. She's in the hollow. He didn't see her. This man is right and wrong at the same time, and he cannot know that. This is life. He's right. His cow is all right. He's wrong. He has not seen her. Do you see the perceptual issue here? It's life. All of life is that. That element of chance means we basically are sort of fundamentally at sea. And this is why Anne says we, the species is too young to have beliefs because we don't have what in esoteric Christianity was called holy the firm, the ground of truth. We don't have that. That's not, that doesn't exist. It, it, in fact, if you get down to the very ground of knowledge, where are you? You're in quantum indeterminacy is where you are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this, what the problem is telling us is that indeterminacy isn't just in the tiny, tiny world of the quanta. It is everywhere, everywhere. I find it exciting. I do too. The micro reflects the macro. What she said just frees the mind and, and opens it in such fabulously powerful ways. 
That was a very smart lady looking up down from back there. Can't have a conversation with Whitley without talking about the love of his life. And I was going to bring her up. So thank you for that. Well, I can love of my life. She was an intellectual powerhouse of the first order and a spiritual powerhouse and an emotional powerhouse. She was something else. Is. Is. Well, that's right. Yeah. The last time I had contact with Anne was about a week ago. And speaking of Holy the Firm, she had she directed me to read a book called Holy the Firm by Annie Dillard, which turns out to be a brain-bendingly brilliant exploration of the nature of the divine and how it lives in our lives. Uh, and coming from Annie from the place she is now, I suspect that there is maybe in somewhere in that book the very ground of truth I just referred to us not having, that maybe we can find it in ourselves somewhere. What we're talking about is deep philosophy and perennial wisdom that I so pray, Whitley, that somehow the masses can get a whiff of. I don't know how else to put it. Instead of talking about the minutia and being preoccupied with myopic vision and opinion to spend a moment or two contemplating these wise words there are no masses no there are only people yeah i hesitated when i said that by the way <laughs> remember this other thing that she said each of us is all we have mm -hmm. that's when i asked her what compassion was how do i do that how do i be compassionate how do i feel it and she answered simply each of us is all we have and that just blew me away because now every time I look at a person who's displeasing me or I don't want to be with or I feel frightened of or I love any of that, I always think this person like me is all they have. This is what they are. This is what they have. And it changes your relationship immediately. You don't become a Mr. Nice Guy but you, you do respect the struggle of the other. Quick question about Anne. You, you quote her so beautifully and so often. And I know that obviously in her physical uh, incarnation, she was brilliant uh, and probably had a lot of wise things to impart to you. But do you feel that you're getting even more of that from her purview now oh yeah definitely it sounds in, like a, 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 in january of 2015 Anne apparently became enlightened and she began that was when she began to prepare for her death which would take place the next august and at that time her dying was the last thing on my mind i was struggling in every possible way to keep her going but she suddenly demand, started demanding that I memorize a poem called Song of the Wandering Angus. I didn't know why, but when I didn't memorize it, she cried, which was very rare. And so I did memorize it. And it turned out to be that Anne, in her amazing state that she was in, had understood that she was going to create an avatar in this world for herself. And I think it's the first person who consciously did that before they died. And the avatar, of course, is the white moth. And uh, the poem contains the line, uh, when white moths were on the wing and the moth-like stars were flickering out. And... Uh, the the short story, The White Moths, that I wrote some years, I guess, in 1988 or 89, was Anne's favorite short story of mine. And after she died, The White Moth began to appear, as I've said on this show before. She had an avatar. And at some point in those next few months, she began to live enlightenment. And she defined it. Enlightenment is what happens when there is nothing left of us but love. And that happened. And when she died, 
I witnessed her ascension. I witnessed it. And it's something, if you witness a thing, such an incredible sacred thing, you will never, never forget it. And she has been the center of my life after her passing of her body, just as she was before for this, these reasons. Probably the most incredibly powerful, it is beyond love if there is such a thing, story of, I, I've ever heard of the quote-unquote afterlife, Whitley. I never tire of listening well, yeah, to her. It is. I mean, she was a master. She mm. she had a near-death experience and became a shaman in 2005. Uh, and then in, in 20, 2013, when she got cancer, she began preparing herself for dying in a very objective way and she did it and she became a transcendent being it's as simple as that that mm. has to be the case I, it, the last time i Anne was with me was last night so you know and and <laughs> Anne is very very motherly toward me if for example if uh i and i'm sure it's Anne. i don't think anybody else I can't imagine anyone else would care this much about me. But if I'm doing, um, say, doing, a, I do some very deep meditations. And if I fall asleep, immediately there's a vibration that comes into my body that's very, very lovely. But it wakes me right up. And I'm sure it's Anne doing it. I can't imagine it would be anyone else, as I said. Mm -hmm. So I still have a very intimate relationship. We're still married as far as I'm concerned. Can you hold up your hand? Do you have both? Yeah, the rings. I go. wear both rings because my theory is we're still a, a couple, but we're only we're down to one body. One so body. I'm sharing with her. Wow. Thank you all always when when you spend time talking about your beloved. And thank you, Anne. I'm talking to you. God bless you. We're winding down, folks, um, but we're not going to leave without two things, two announcements. A, we're going to go next door to Patreon to talk a little more. I'm going to put you on the spot, Whitley, over on Patreon. You know what I want to talk about? If you recall a week or so ago as we were getting ready to uh, record for our workshop promotion, little plug there we'll talk about it in a minute, something interesting happened with your security camera. I don't want you to go into it right now, but is this something you'd be willing to share? You know what I'm talking about. Something when you and I were having a conversation about this workshop, you believe something quite profound happened and you got up and you checked your security camera. Yeah. Well, there was, there was, it reported movement in the living room. Okay. There wasn't anyone in the living room. Well, we're going to leave it there. I want to tease that because I want to talk about, I want to explore that a little bit more with you over on Patreon. So that's what we're okay. going to do for about 15 or so minutes. So join us All for right. the after show. Great way to support higher journeys guys. And, uh, and it's, it's a great, it's a great platform. So we'll go over there in a minute. Now, before we do, however, if you did not get anything out of this, particularly if you were an experiencer, I'm talking to you, the journeyers, uh, I'm not going to say if you didn't, because I know you did, but if you are even remotely interested in hearing more about Whitley's journey, because you yourself are trying to cope, integrate, understand what your experience is all about and what to do with it. I'm so delighted to let you know that Whitley will be joining us over at the Higher Journeys Conscious Academy for a workshop that we are calling How to Be Open and Embrace Your ET Contact. It's Saturday, January 29th. That will be this coming Saturday, uh, 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. And Whitley is going to be really kind of giving us a breakdown of not only his journey, of which you've you've obviously heard a bit about over the years, uh, but about how best to deal with your own. And everybody's story is different, but Whitley is going to have so many beautiful things to impart. Right, Whitley? And couple of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm going to be talking about how to um, position yourself internally in such a way 
that you're open to these presences and forces in a in a way that's useful to you and to your growth because it's quite possible to be open to them in very negative ways that's that happens all the time but it doesn't have to be that way it can be different and it may also be that uh, your own dead are are there and trying to engage with you because we have this highly materialistic civilization we struggle with am, uh, uh, anesthesia of the soul. Our souls are numbed, and but there are ways of using the body, oddly enough, to get us past that. Because you know what the body is, is the body is how the, the physical perceptual system sees the soul. So once we can, in working with our bodies, we also work with our souls. So all of that's going to be in there. And basically, the trajectory of my life in contact, which started out as a hellish experience and uh, exploitative, I was treated with great exploitative indifference, has changed completely over the years. And I'll talk about why that trajectory exists and it can exist in your life too. And if you're not in contact, let me give you a, a heads up. Everybody's in contact. Some of us notice it and some of us do not notice it. And if you're one of the ones who hasn't noticed it, I may be able to give you some pointers that will help you to notice what your life really is. That's fantastic. I concur. I concur. As you recall, I interviewed you for the first lecture that I did in Australia called Unconscious Contact. Are you an experiencer and don't know it? So that's a whole nother rabbit hole. Maybe one day we'll go down. Yeah. So. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to, I know you've got a full day ahead of you, Whitley. We're going to go over to Patreon and do a little talking over there. Uh, you were going to be doing a lot of talking in a week. So everyone consider uh, signing up for this incredible workshop. And we're also going to do a live Q&A directly after the workshop. Uh, it's going to be a, a fun day and a powerful one. So of course, we'll have the link in the description below. Click on it, sign up, learn more, and join us. So all right, everyone, I'm going to say goodbye for now. Hope to see you next door. The door is opening now. We're going to Patreon. And until then, we'll see you in the next episode of Higher Journeys. Talk to you real soon. Thank you, Whitley, as always. <laughs> Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.